It's the L-U-E-E Holiday Special. Starring Ashlyn Noble, Laura Creek Newman, Lauren Bailey, and Jen Newman. With Brendan Curran Johnson. And introducing Huxley Newman as Lumpy. With special guest stars Ian James, Rochelle McCullough, Jeffrey Olson, and Beatrice Arthur on the L-U-E-E Holiday Special! On today's special holiday episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, we are going to talk about charitable giving. After all, isn't that what the holiday season is all about? No. no. The holiday season is about presents. <laughs> <laughs> For other people, dear. <laughs> At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute. Are there no prisons? So on this episode, Brendan will be talking about the differences between image and effect. Lauren will give us a primer on effective altruism. Ashlyn will be talking about some common pitfalls of food drives and similar forms of in-kind donations. And uh, Laura and I are going to take a closer look at some popular charitable organizations in particular. But I thought we'd start a little bit more personally uh, and talk about the uh, organizations that we donate to ourselves. We donate to UNICEF and the UNHCR, which is another UN foundation that I can't... Uh, refugees? Uh, they, I can't the remember UN the... UN High Commission on Refugees. That's the one. Um, so we donate to both of those, and we donate to Winnipeg Harvest and the Red Cross. I forgot about the Red Cross every month. Yep. And we've been trying to expand our, our donations as we are able to do that. But that's kind of where we've settled for right now. So a little bit of local, a little bit of international. Yep. And uh, a little bit spread across several organizations that represent things that we're interested in, rather than focused like a laser on one specific thing that we think will best alleviate suffering. <laughs> Who knows? Wow. Maybe that'll come up later. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> point at all. <laughs> Why are you looking at me, Jim? Um, I donate to Foundation Beyond Belief, an organization that chooses four or five different organizations um, every quarter and uh, really does a, a very good job of vetting them and making sure that uh, the money is going to the places that it will do a lot of good. Um, and the, the categories that they choose from every quarter are things like education or poverty and stuff like that. And so you can reallocate your funds every quarter, which is, I think, pretty cool. So it's a way mm -hmm. to sort of spread out your giving without much effort. <laughs> <laughs> it's a charity aggregator. Kind of, yeah. They vet the charities properly, and there's no religious angle to them. Either. Yeah, well, they make sure that the charities don't proselytize, for sure. Um, except for every quarter, there's also one that is sort of the bridging the gap charity. So they uh, they pick one that is sort of religious in nature to be like, we're working together, yay! Pre presumably they pick one that ha that has a secular purpose, however, beyond exactly, simply yeah. proselytizing. Yeah, and, I, and I don't believe that they, they pick ones that that do proselytize right. as part of the, the charity. Through my work, I donate to uh, Amnesty International and to one of the no-kill shelters here in Winnipeg. And so I think this list is current, and it is far too much U.S. stuff. I'm pretty sure my list of charities is uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, Doctors Without Borders, uh, Drug Policy Alliance, which does stuff relating to the war on drugs, um, 
the ACLU, uh, Safe Horizon, which is the biggest, uh, I believe the biggest charity in the U.S. that deals with victims of abuse and trying to help them get out of bad situations, uh, Critical Resistance, which is a group that is working towards prison abolition, uh, Planned Parenthood, I believe actually Planned Parenthood Action Center, which is slightly different, that's the lobbying side of it, and then I believe I'm currently giving to National Network of Abortion Funds. If I'm not, I should be. (laughs) (laughs) Good list. Yeah, so uh, we're going to talk in detail about not very many of those charities, actually. <laughs> uh, but uh, some of them will at least get a name check a little bit later on. But I, I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, because we haven't talked about what a charity even is. Well, this outline is your fault, Jim. Colloquially, a charity is a nonprofit organization that focuses on social well-being, providing goods and services to those in need, or otherwise working to advance a goal that serves the common good. Uh, charities differ from other nonprofit organizations in that the aim of a charity is to serve the interests of the public at large rather than simply the interests of the organization's members. So in Canada, a registered charitable organization must pass what's known as the public benefit test, meaning that its activities must provide a tangible benefit, and those people who are eligible to benefit from the charity's activities are either the public as a whole or a significant part of the public, uh, and are a restricted group or one whose members share a private connection, like a social club or a professional association. Or a church. Well, hmm... Speaking of, (laughs) what qualifies as a common good is a little bit vague, as you might imagine. Yeah. Canadian charities are regulated by the Charities Directorate, which is an arm of the Canada Revenue Agency, which is the Canadian equivalent of the IRS, uh, which uses a common law approach to defining charity. So that means, uh, for those not familiar with the term common law... Is it when they've, like, lived together for at least seven years? (laughs) Yeah. The charities have lived together for at least seven years. Rather than legislative action defining what qualifies as a charitable cause, uh, charitable causes are instead decided by case law. So decisions of the court that nominally decide an individual case, whether this qualifies as charitable or not, then set a precedent for future decisions. Sometimes they're greatly wrong. (laughs) So the CRA recognizes four general charitable purposes. The relief of poverty, the advancement of education, other purposes beneficial to the community, which is a miscellaneous category which includes everything from operating an animal shelter to providing counseling services. And finally, the advancement of religion. Wow. <laughs> yes. So the advancement of religion in general, or a specific religion in particular, is considered its own charitable purpose uh, under CRA uh, rules. Incidentally, advocating for secularism would not qualify as a charitable purpose unless you framed it as educational in some way. Huh. All right. Could you frame it under the community building one, like the miscellaneous yeah. thing yeah. there? You could make a specific argument for it, absolutely, but it would not be automatically included right. as, as a charitable purpose. I don't think that's unreasonable. Like, the unreasonable half is the advancing religion part. Like, yes. I don't... I don't think it's unfair to say that advancing not religion should automatically be a charity. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that a lot of the things that we do and we strive for is specifically would fall under the category of education. 
However, I do think that advancing religion is not a demonstrable public good in and of itself. Well, I'm just going to get every charity I register <laughs> under Discordianism. <laughs> <laughs> so some organizations may meet that definition, but may still be ineligible for registration as a charity because they engage in other activities that are limited or prohibited by CRA rules. So Bad Science Watch, which comes up from time to time on this show because I spend a lot of my time working uh, there as the chair of the board, is a classic example. The science advocacy work that we do serves the common good and is of no special benefit to our members, but the CRA prohibits registered charities from using more than 10% of their resources engaging in activities that it considers political. And while Bad Science Watch is nonpartisan, much of the work that we do involves strengthening consumer protection legislation, which the CRA justifiably sees as political action. Speaking of politics, I believe Brendan is going to be talking about political contributions and how we perceive a donation can be different from the effect that donation has. On October 16th, 2016, the North Carolina Republican Party office was firebombed and the building was destroyed. In an act of solidarity, Democrats set up a GoFundMe page to help reopen this office. And in less than 40 minutes, they raised $12,882, more than their original goal of $10,000. So, this sounds like a good thing at first glance, but there are some problems with it. First and foremost, insurance exists. <laughs> oh god. How did I not see anybody talking about that? Really? That's all I saw in the aftermath of that. Like, why? These people have insurance. Oh, there are lots of good things yeah. to talk about that aren't insurance, but insurance yeah. is the least of the problems with this, is right. that the GOP is going to be able to rebuild their building because almost certainly the big business party has insurance for their offices. More than that, though, this happened less than a month before the election, so that money isn't going to go to rebuilding a specific office. That money was donated to the GOP, and the GOP was going to use that for the general election. Even if we ignore the logistics of how that worked out, there's some real questions about whether it was a good idea in the first place. One of the things that the GoFundMe page talked about was that uh, there was an abhorrent threat painted on the outside wall of the building. Now, in fact, the message that was written on the outside of the building was, Nazi Republicans leave town or else. Now, I think my opinion on that is best summed up by the dead Kennedys who said, Nazi punks, f*** off. So I don't particularly see a problem with trying to get rid of Nazis. Although, obviously, especially not on a recorded podcast, am I going to advocate for firebombing GOP offices? <laughs> Thank you. That is not a thing I am advocating. There are bigger problems with this because the GOP and the North Carolina GOP in specific don't really represent trying to fight against violence. Uh, one of the big things that happened with uh, the North Carolina GOP this year is they did a lot of work to disenfranchise black voters. They specifically asked how black people tended to vote, and then they removed or reduced those options. The North Carolina GOP eliminated Sunday voting because counties with Sunday voting were disproportionately black and disproportionately Democratic. And that is a quote by them. And... When it came to the actual election day, the North Carolina GOP specifically bragged about the fact that 
African-American early voting was down 8.5% from that time in 2012, and as a share of early voters, African-American voters were down 6.0%. They also bragged that uh, Republican ballots uh, were up uh, by 122,349, while Democratic ballots were cast were down 22,288. They specifically bragged that they they had helped prevent black people from voting. And this isn't even the only thing that the North Carolina GOP has been famous for over the last year. Arguably, the biggest thing would be House Bill 2, which you may have heard of back in March of this year, when it was passed in an emergency session held by the North Carolina legislature. Um, We heard about it. So for specific details on it, I would recommend there is a very, very good series of tweets that are going to be linked to in this podcast by Andy McClure that break down the specifics of exactly why this bill was monstrous. But just at a high level, uh, the bill prevented cities, uh, cities here specifically almost certainly means Charlotte, North Carolina, from passing LGBT non-discrimination bills and nullified any existing bills. It also prevented trans people from going to the bathroom in their preferred bathrooms, and this would mean that essentially trans people were unable to go to the bathroom at schools and other public buildings such as courts or prisons. Uh, So I will say the one piece of good news related to the North Carolina GOP and the election is that this bill happened to be so unpopular with the populace at large that Pat McCrory, the governor who was behind it, got voted out. But what matters here is that uh, the the image of this GoFundMe campaign was that they were reaching across the aisle and they were standing against violence. But the reality is they were directly supporting disenfranchisement, hate, and exclusion. They were helping support policies that cause real violence, policies that kill people. It was a bit of political theater, right? Yes, was, that's exactly it was, what it was. Look at how magnanimous mag- we are. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Look at how magnanimous we are. So. I know what you may be thinking, well, I might not be dumb enough to do that, or I had very good reasons for making that donation, although I saw at least one high-profile person very quickly walk back their donation. But uh, this sort of stuff happens more generally. If you think of, now, they're not really in vogue anymore, but like, Live Strong bracelets, or (laughs) more recently, Komen for the Cure, which is all of the pink products, or all of the various green environmental products that exist. Coleman for the Cure, I'm sure you're going to talk about the pink. Oh yes, that's the specific thing I'm going to talk about. The first time I ever came across the term pink washing was Mm -hmm. in reference to Coleman. I think it's also used in terms of gay rights stuff. Yeah, Yeah. LGBT stuff. Alright, so the, the thing that Jen just alluded to, almost certainly, was in October of 2010, Baker Hughes uh, announced that they were selling 1,000 pink-painted drill bits as a reminder of the importance of supporting research, treatment, screening, and education, and to help find the cure for the disease, and they would be donating $100,000 to Komen. Now, these drill bits are drill bits that are used for fracking. So it's very obviously a case where something that will actually have real harm to people and real harm to women will almost certainly increase the incidence of cancer is being used as a shield to make a company look better. You see a lot of this, and some companies have actually sort of made it their model. For instance, Tom's Shoes and Warby Parker both have buy one, give one policies where you buy shoes or glasses, respectively, and they will donate a matching pair to people in need. And... I don't want to say that that's necessarily a bad thing, but that certainly isn't the most efficient way to get those supplies to people in need. With anything where, where charity is involved, it can be hard because nothing's going to necessarily be all good or all bad, 
those companies are doing good things, but they are also using charity as a way to market themselves and a way to advertise, and it's it's probably cheaper than doing actual marketing. To move on to a final example, in terms of thinking about how other people give money, Andrew Carnegie is very well known. You uh, In Canada, you probably are most likely to know his name because Carnegie Mellon University. But in the U.S., he's most famous for Carnegie Libraries, which are a series of libraries that he funded across the U.S. And this is undoubtedly a good thing that people can read. But Andrew Carnegie was also a steel baron, and his companies fought really hard to break strikes. They were very anti-union. The way that Andrew Carnegie made his money was by exploiting others. There is power in a factory, there is power in the land, there is power in the hand of the worker. But it all amounts to nothing if together we don't stand, oh, there is power in a union. When he made these gifts, maybe he really wanted to make the world a better place, but he was also using it to help improve his brand and make him look like a better person. And He's buying an indulgence, right? Almost literally. Uh, yeah. yeah. Speaks for money, the devil for his own. Who will come to speak for the skin and the bone? What a comfort to the widow and a light to the child. Oh, there is power in a union. Obviously, this sort of stuff still happens today. Bill Gates, who in the past would have most famously been the nerdy guy who started Microsoft, is often talked about for his uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that he and his wife Melinda Gates uh, founded and have put billions of dollars into, and they do real good work. They've done a lot of amazing anti-malarial work, but the the foundation does do other things as well. For instance, it has put a lot of weight behind charter schools, and it has sort of fought against just increasing funding to public schools because obviously there's a better market-based solution. So not only is philanthropy something that's used to, to sort of make yourself look better, but it also is a political action. When someone is giving money to a thing, that has real weight in what happens. Uh, the personal is always political. Yes. Uh, you also see that with Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, who has made billions of dollars by exploiting people's personal data. He has the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative with his wife. They have promised uh, $3 billion to cure all diseases which is impressive in so many ways. <laughs> All diseases this century, they are going to give $3 billion uh, to do research into cures for diseases so that they can eliminate all diseases this century. I think we have a problem with scope here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where is their officer of scope creep? <laughs> now, Mark Zuckerberg also is involved in another philanthropic organization, internet.org, which has the noble goal of bringing the internet to all of the world. But you may be wondering, isn't there some interesting conflict of interest between someone who has made their money off of a major website trying to increase the availability of the internet around the world? And in in fact, I believe this was in 2015, uh, India voted against some of the things that Internet Org was trying to do there because they didn't like the idea that the internet that Mark Zuckerberg and co. were bringing would have made it possible to view things like unlimited Facebook, unlimited Wikipedia, but not necessarily unlimited all sites. Mm. Right. Yeah, that's like for me it's not the conflict of interest really. It's like okay, well he's a tech person, you like you tend to do your 
work in an area that yeah. you're interested in, that you have knowledge of, that's fine. But then when it's like, oh, but only my company gets to give you free access, everything else, you know, you get the watered down 30 day trial version or not access at all. That's where the problem comes. Like if it's just increasing internet access, free, like open internet access, yes, like Cake, that's much better. Yeah. But it's when it's like, oh, but these few companies, that's that's the problem. Yeah, it can be hard to separate the image and the effect of a charitable action, but it's also very important. It's important in your in your own charitable giving to make sure that you're having the effect on the world that you want to have, and it's also important to pay attention for it in others because otherwise people can use the image of an action to manipulate you into thinking that they're doing things that they're not. Good, Andy. Yeah. Also, seemingly perfectly tied into what's coming next. <laughs> yeah. Effective altruism is essentially a philosophy of living your charitable choices. People who choose an effective altruism lifestyle either live very minimally themselves or they have a higher-end job and then donate most of their earnings to charity. It differs from other uh, philanthropic practices because of its emphasis on quantitative comparing charitable goals and interventions. So they'll weigh the different charities. And they, there's a couple of different uh, websites and other charity groups that will do this for you. And they'll say, okay, this one, it gives 98% of the profits to the actual charity work. So that is a better use of my money, better use of my dollar than to one that gives slightly less. And also look at outcomes too, right? Not just where the money goes, but how effective the charity is in accomplishing its goal in yeah. a quantitative that's, way. I was like, going to bring that up. And, and that's a, that a lot of people are saying because just because they put all of the money, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily having a big impact. Yeah, maybe all the money went into yeah. uh, and, pink drill bits. <laughs> or, yeah, or like a lot of people will say, well, you know, I want all the money or almost all the money to go to programs and not overhead. And it's yeah. like, but they're, depending on the size of the charity, you need a certain amount of overhead for things to work effectively and efficiently to have a decent impact. And so if you measure impact, you can see a better overall thing. Anyway. So yeah. the idea is like evidence-based charity, essentially. Yeah. 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 People who are concerned mostly with health initiatives, uh, they select health interventions on the basis of their impact as measured by life saved per dollar, quality-adjusted life years saved per dollar, disability-adjusted life years averted per dollar. The um, disability-adjusted life years is a key measure employed by the United Nations World Health Organization to see if charities are doing the the maximum amount that they can for their dollar. So these are like well-vetted metrics, not just yeah. things that, uh, you know, I know one of the websites is givewell.org. Yes. You know, they're, they're not just making this up no. themselves. The cause priorities, they are going to differ for everybody. Uh, everybody's going to have their pet project. So some are uh, global poverty alleviation, uh, animal welfare, um, far future and global catastrophic risks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically what that boils down to is I don't care what's going on in the world today. I care about how the world's going to be X number of years from now. And let's work towards that goal. Basically, we are all <laughs> let's just deal with the future generations. I, I think the argument generally goes uh, in the future, there will be more people than there are in the present. In the future, robots might kill us all. So we should spend all of our available resources to prevent robots from killing future people rather than alleviating poverty today. I don't know.
know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Come with me if you want to live. Mm-hmm. But isn't that really dumb and unrealistic and a waste of money and a way for tech people to just feel great about themselves because they can be heroes solving the tech problems they're causing? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Speaking uh, of that, yeah, yeah, uh, one, yeah. of the, one of the last cause priorities is the meta priority. So those who donate to effective altruism <laughs> causes themselves so they can be more effectively altruistic. So we, we should spend all of our resources converting other people to be effective altruists. Yeah. The ultimate MLM. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, some X risks are obviously more ridiculous than others. Uh, you know, while, while I may decry some effective altruists uh, for being, in my opinion, overly concerned about malevolent AI, th- there are plenty of others who are primarily concerned with the not-so-far-future impact of catastrophic climate change, and which, like, I think is a much easier position to argue. Yeah. One of the visions of uh, effective altruism that I actually found really striking and that really um, resonates with me is a life anywhere is worth the same as a life down the street. Yeah. So you're going to care as much about that child starving somewhere else in the world as you are the child starving down the street and you want to stop both. And we talked about this actually way back on our Thought Experiments episode with the life you can save. And Peter Singer... He's an effective altruism. That's his big thing. So some of the organizations, Jem had mentioned GiveWell. So that's a charity evaluator that started in 2007. And it's it's based as an aggregator for effective altruism. Its focus is on identifying the most prominent causes and charities to donate to. Its recommendations are mostly in the area of developing world health and poverty alleviation around the world. Another one is Giving What We Can, which maximizes the good they can do in the world through donations. 80,000 Hours conducts research on careers with positive social impact and provides career advice. So how you can better live your effective altruism. And there's a bunch of other aggregators and evaluators that you can search for. Something I have an issue with is how much of it is... I really want to be the change that I want to see in the world and how much is I want to seem like I am the change as Brendan discussed in his segment a little bit. <laughs> it's the, I'm more charitable than thou. Hmm. I'm, I wonder how much of it is, you know, it, it's really noble to either live well below your means or take a high paying job and give most of the money to charity. That's a very noble cause, but how much is the ego of giving and how much is actually altruism? And does it matter? Not something that's confined to effective altruism no. either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, if you're using, but I'm going to give this money to charity as an excuse for doing things to make money, then that can just have direct negative effects. And to be fair to effective altruists, some of their orgs actually spend a lot of time, like 80,000 hours, spends a lot of time talking about that very thing. Yeah. And as you were saying before, with the pink drill bits going to fracking, how much is I'm working in this horrible field in order to donate to offset what I'm doing? A lot of, a lot of effective altruism, I don't want to say apologists, but I guess apologists, saying, well, yeah, I work for Goldman Sachs and give most of my money to to these charities because somebody else is going to do this job anyway, and I can do the most good by working in this job where I get hundreds of thousands of dollars and give most of it to charity. And that's one of the interesting mm. 
uh, aspects of effective altruism. And we'll link in the show notes to uh, a few episodes of The Reality Check. The host of The Reality Check, Darren McKee, is uh, a big proponent, a vocal proponent of effective altruism. And so he has uh, he has a lot to say about it. And he can explain it better than we can (laughs) in a three minute segment. Yeah, uh, he's dedicated several segments to it and he he can explain it. uh, Yeah, he's been been very thorough. He's somebody who can actually live the live the experience. I would love to give more of my money to charity and to be more open with my money, but I can't. And that's hard for me to admit. <laughs> but one of the most interesting aspects of effective altruism is that focus on not necessarily doing a job that is in and of itself doing good, but given the fact that we live in a capitalist society, doing the job that will net you the most capital, which you yeah. can then disburse to charitable causes. And I I definitely see the appeal of that argument. You know, I want to do harm reduction. So I wouldn't work for a company that manufactures guns if that money is going to go, through me, go towards stopping gun killing. Gun violence. Gun violence. (laughs) Gun killing. Yeah, gun killing. I would rather not work for a company that manufactures guns and then giving it to charities that prevent Mm -hmm. gun violence. But with Goldman Sachs as a specific example, I mean, not everybody would agree that that is in and of itself a morally questionable act. Mm -hmm. I think one of my problems with effective altruism, not with the idea of trying to have the most effect with what you're doing, but the effective altruism (coughs) sort of as it's presented is by giving the idea that there's this one most important thing. It loses the idea that, like, if you can help a bunch of people, they can also do work to help Mm -hmm. towards a lot of causes. And also just the idea that... We may not have a good idea how to solve a problem, but if we spread money out and work on a number of problems, we can work out things that will help with other problems as well. Like, not everything we discover is based on trying to discover that exact thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can see mm-hmm. it kind of as a bit of a Dear Muslima argument, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I while there are some effective altruists who would say you should only give to the top X charities on this charity aggregator that I think vets things well... For most people, there are things that they care about personally because Mm -hmm. they've been personally affected by them and they'll make those choices. But when I'm trying to decide where I give my money, I do try to pick things like the UNHCR or like UNICEF that are fairly well vetted and that are global rather than local in scope. So, so I'm very, I'm very sympathetic to that, Mm. to that approach. So am I. When I look at the charities that I select through work. You have to ch- to pick from the approved list or get it vetted right. through my corporation. So I pick the ones that do the least harm and do the best good from those on that list. Personally, uh, I've always felt that it's important to do a combination mm-hmm. of both because it does. I I sort of feel that if my focus becomes on global, where there are big big problems that need solving and need people and money and all these kinds of things it becomes easier to overlook things that are on your own, in your own backyard. So to try to spread it around a little bit. So yeah. for me, it was really important to have a charity in there that was a little bit more local mm-hmm. in, in scope as well. Since we're talking about having maximum effect when donating to charity, I want to uh, summarize a bit from the book to Damned Nations, which is by Samantha Nutt, who is the founder of Warchild and... The book ends with a bit about what you should be doing and thinking about when giving to charity, and she gives seven rules about what to think about when you're donating. Um, And those are, 
Respond to an urgent crisis or disaster because it saves lives, but not exclusively because it's also important to be working on longer-term infrastructure and stuff like that that can help alleviate problems in the future. Uh, regular contributions allow people to be more responsible with money. That allows them to plan with money. It's a lot more important than just giving a donation right when something bad is happening. Uh, and related to that, avoid earmarking your donations, because even though you may care about giving money to that specific problem, it can take a while for money to go through a charity, so them having a bit of a slush fund for dealing with problems allows them to be able to right away and deal with the next big problem, and if you care about this specific issue now, you should care about the equivalent issue in the future. Uh, and then, rather than giving to big organizations that uh, have large infrastructure, it's often helpful to donate to field-level organizations that are actually dealing with these specific problems on the ground that have a better understanding of exactly what needs to be done and have the connections that they can actually do the work they need to. Know how the organization raises money and consider whether those methods are in line with a respectful, sensitive portrayal of the people living living in those situations. So any ads that just sort of exploit dying children in order to raise money is not necessarily having a positive effect overall, mm -hmm. even if they're trying to. Um, ask how much money uh, an organization spends on advertising annually, because there are a lot of organizations that spend a lot in advertising but don't do as much work, and there are a lot of organizations that are doing a lot of great work but can't afford to really advertise themselves. And then finally, invest in promoting an end to violence and instability in areas because that can have some of the biggest effect in all sorts of other problems. If an area is stable, it can solve so many more problems. Well, right, yeah. If you have infrastructure that isn't, you know, falling apart all the time, then, you know... People can go to school, and there can be regular access to food and clean water, and think healthcare, and all of these things that mm -hmm. you are, you know, you're doing kind of band aid when really what you need is, you know, things not to blow up yeah. for a while. Yeah, you don't need a new government every week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's often helpful. Yeah, let's stick with one for a while and see how it goes. Okay, let's not stick right now during no. the rise <laughs> of fascism. <laughs> It was a allegorical statement. <laughs> poorly timed. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, there are a lot of criticisms of EA that are, how should I phrase this, almost completely ridiculous. Uh, so uh, David Brooks, for example, um, oh. <laughs> I know you can't, you can't say, you can't say his name. You just shouldn't, because what's the point? Yeah, uh, he wrote about uh, about this when uh, effective altruism hit the news a few years ago, and it is totally absurd. Although no more than anything else he has to say, I suspect. Uh, Brooks' position is that rather than looking at the consequences of our giving, we should concern ourselves more with the internally ennobling character of charity. Oh. <laughs> Which seems to me, and maybe I'm being small-minded here, but uh, that seems to place more importance on the welfare of the person giving rather than the welfare of those in need. What charity gives me a hard-on? Uh, but hey, I'm not a New York Times he, columnist, so what do I know? Well, neither should he. <laughs> uh, and like, also, that's sort of the same argument of it should only matter what your intent was when you did something wrong. Yeah. Actions have consequences. What gives me the good feels and what it's going to make me feel good when I say it at the charity party or something. I, I will quote him very briefly. Jesus. <laughs> I would be wary of inverting the natural order of affections. If you see the world on a strictly intellectual level, then a child in Pakistan or Zambia is just as valuable as your own child. But not many people actually think this way. 
David Brooks is concerned about inverting the status quo because the only reason he has a column is he's a rich guy who is friends with people who own newspapers. <laughs> David Brooks. <laughs> Skipping a bit. I think you would be more likely to cultivate a deep soul if you put yourself in the middle of things that engaged you most seriously. If your profoundest interest is dying children in Africa or Bangladesh, it's probably best to go to Africa or Bangladesh. And watch them die? Uh, presumably to help. Okay. That's really all I can say about effective altruism. If that's your lifestyle, good for you. You're a better person than I. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Uh, so at what point are we going to mention that the, it's the interest in directly wanting to help can be harmful as well, and sometimes the best thing you can do is give money because you aren't trained. That's Actually, my segment. Talk about it. Okay, yeah, sorry for <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt his great segue. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about how it's great to give stuff? Okay. No. That's wrong. (laughs) So, when big natural disasters or humanitarian crises hit, like earthquakes or famines, sometimes people have this drive to donate stuff. They really want to give people the coats and shoes and boots and blankets that are cluttering up their closets. They don't use anymore, but they look at them and go... But this is still good. Someone could use this. Um, and so the, the those sorts of things are the things that tend to be donated when an earthquake happens. It's easy to think, surely someone who just lost everything will appreciate this. So in almost all cases, unless there are forces on the ground who are asking for specific things, sending stuff or dropping it off with a group who promises to deliver it to the needy population uh, does more harm than good. A well-studied example is the effect that imported donated clothing has had on African countries. In Kenya, they had a textile sector that was doing pretty well. It was uh, growing and providing jobs for people. And anytime you have a factory or a industry, mm-hmm. it creates more than just the jobs that right. go into that factory, mm-hmm. right? Like there's the, the service industry. You'll have you know, all the restaurants or whatever that feed the people who work there. You have all of the people who make stuff that the people who work in the factory buy. Um, And so that was all doing really well and really supporting their economy. And then uh, they had uh, trade rules that changed um, and allowed for the importing very cheaply of goods that had been donated. And so now in Kenya, you can buy used clothing literally by the bale. Uh, So you get a giant bale of clothing and you rip it apart and you find the good things and uh, and then they have these stalls that will sell them. And that's a, a billion dollar industry right now in Kenya. So instead of having factories that offer stable employment and all the satellite jobs and economic activity that come along with that, um, now they have a crappy secondhand clothes market mm-hmm. that does no good to anyone except for the people importing the donated clothes that they didn't have to pay very much for. Um, Another example is when you send your used shoes to a country that's just had a disaster, there's a lot more that happens besides you donating a pair of shoes and someone receiving a pair of shoes. There are a lot of steps in between there, and all of those steps cost time and money, and 
time and money are valuable resources, both of them. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so someone has to ship them. Someone has to sort them. Someone has to pair up people who need shoes with the shoes that are available. And first of all, did anyone in the disaster area even need shoes? A lot of the time, people don't really stop to ask that before they send off their used goods that they don't really want anymore. In the end, you wind up with warehouses that are full of crap that no one wants and no one needs. And then there are storage fees and administrative costs associated with getting rid of that stuff. Um, So if every person in the disaster area receives a pair of shoes, there's also the question of what happens to the guy in the town that that disaster was in who makes shoes or sells shoes. So now that guy has totally tanked his business for the next five years because everybody has a pair of shoes and no one needs to buy from him. So there are all these ripple effects of giving stuff that are almost all alleviated if you just send them cash. Cash is useful. People on the ground know how to put it to work. As the Wu-Tang Clan once said, Cash rules everything around me. Cream grab the money. Dollar dollar bill, y'all. That is a relevant quote. <laughs> Cash fools everything around me. Cream gets the money. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. So I think an interesting example of where this does not necessarily hold true is Standing Rock. Um, so they've put out on Amazon uh, like wish lists and um, various Facebook lists of things that they really need, desired equipment and cold weather gear, stuff like that. And they've asked that it be shipped directly to an address that's quite near their camp. And so that, it puts the shipping cost at least on the donors. And so that takes out a lot of the the middleman costs that yeah. are involved in things like that. And as long as it's stuff that they've specifically asked for and not a bunch of crap that they don't need. Well, I, well, that's the thing. It's the people who are there right. doing the thing, saying this is what we need. They are the ground level organization. Yeah. yeah. These are the things also, that are Also, there's the specific issue there that local places had stopped selling to people who were protesting at Standing Rock. Right, yeah. So if you cannot get the thing locally, it is, at that point, obviously more efficient to send it from somewhere else. I just wanted to point out, there is still another thing with Standing Rock, though, that Mm -hmm. they were having another specific problem of people wanting to feel good about helping out and arriving at the protest camp and not really being ready to do the work, not coming properly supplied. Like, if people are going to, if they want to get directly involved in something, they need to be ready to actually do the work on it. It can't just be feel-good tourism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... Exciting news. As of about four hours ago, the Army Corps of Engineers has denied them a permit to drill under the Missouri River. So right now they are looking for alternate routes to the pipeline. Of course, this can still be appealed and the new regime down in the States could overturn everything. But that is some pretty exciting news right now. Yeah, I just happened to notice that as you were starting your segment as well. So we are recording on December 4th. Yeah, this will be old news by the time it goes out. Yeah. <laughs> but right now, we're sitting here a little flabbergasted. And hopefully not superseded news. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Cautiously optimistic going on around here. Mm-hmm. Protest works. So as Brendan was saying, another sort of aspect of the wanting to feel good for sending stuff issue is uh, the problem that happens when somebody has not a lot of money, but they have time. And they think, well, I could volunteer for this cause. Um, And so one of the things that we see is like volunteerism, where people will go to a place and be like, I can help build houses for a week. And so they raise all the money and they fly to somewhere that needs houses. And then they get trained for like three days on how not to be a complete failure at building houses. 
and then they spend two days, you know, nailing things together, and then they fly home. And they feel really good about themselves because they helped. But how much good does that really do the community in question? Uh, would it have done more good if they had just taken all that money that they spent on the flight and the trip and sent it to people who could have employed local folks to build those houses less incompetently? More competently? More However competent. you want to phrase that. Right. at all? Competently. Yes. There we go. And if those people were just as unskilled, the, the small amount of training that they got would have been useful in that community for a longer period of time. Exactly. Now have a, a useful skill. Mm-hmm. Habitat for Humanity seems to kind of have a way around this. So I have a, an acquaintance who recently went to Nepal to help with their rebuilding effort after the earthquake. And I thought it was really interesting. She had to actually raise something like $5,000 to go towards materials on top of her flight and everything else. Mm. And then went there and got some training and incompetently built a house for a week. <laughs> uh, so, but she donated five grand yeah, towards so the materials. Yeah, so at right. least there was something that she did actually is going to do some good in that community. It's like a charitable <laughs> offset for your charity. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, there are other pros to this model, right? Like you probably feel more connected to the community and maybe yeah. you will help them out more in the future or your trip will, uh, there's the ubiquitous phrase, raise awareness <laughs> for the cause. And maybe mm-hmm. that will drive more resources towards that cause. But in general, give them money. <laughs> <laughs> is going to do the most good on the ground. They can turn your dollar into three in some instances and make your money work harder. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so a closer to home example um, is probably things like food drives. Because food drive is one of the things that you hear about the most, I think, in in our community. It's uh, A lot of events will be bring a tin for the bin. If you uh, bring a can of food, you get into the event free, and all of the food generally goes to Winnipeg Harvest. <laughs> there are several problems with this. Again, if you if you are trying to do the most good, uh, you know, going to Safeway and buying one of their five dollar packages of, uh, you know, a can of some sort of protein and and a box of cereal or whatever. They have the prepackaged mm-hmm. things available yeah. that you can put into directly into the Winnipeg Harvest bin. So you're paying retail prices for whatever that food is Mm -hmm. and then somebody has to pick up that food and drive it to somewhere else and then probably somewhere else and then eventually it gets to the people in need whereas if you directly donate money to Winnipeg Harvest they can probably buy that food at pennies on the dollar that what it would cost you in Safeway yeah yeah but Safeway doesn't get to make a tidy profit on your charity (laughs) well that would that's very unfortunate for Safeway Uh, so besides the fact that charities get uh, bulk discounts Um, Charities often don't actually get what they want to give people through food drives. Again, a lot of the food that they get is stuff that you find in the back of your cupboard and you think, well, this is still good, but I don't want to eat it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like, for example, um, whenever they put out the list of, like, the top ten things that they would really like to have, uh, one of the items is always canned fruit, but not pineapple. Because so many people give them canned pineapple because it's what they find in the back of the fridge. Because you bought it for that ham a couple years ago and never used it. And, oh, geez, I guess I should do this before the expiry date goes. <laughs> What's yeah. wrong with people? Pineapple's delicious. <laughs> I totally agree. But for some reason, when Pig Harvest gets a lot of it. Make yourself yeah. a carrot cake. <laughs> Carrots are different than pineapples, Jim. A lot of carrot cake. <laughs> I've been doing this wrong the whole time. <laughs> Make it upside down cake. Seriously, though, pi- pineapple and carrot cake? It's good. Yeah, that sounds all right. I just like making funny. Don't we all? <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, it's just sort of a, a microcosm of the bigger problem of giving stuff to organizations is almost always less efficient than giving money. And this happens in big ways and small ways in pretty much every charity. Yep. Transport inefficiency is a big thing too. Like if you're going if you're going to drive out to Safeway to to buy something and then drive it to the event and give it to somebody at the event and then it gets driven from the event back to Winnipeg Harvest and then it gets dispersed from there, it's there get cash. It's a lot of gas to drive around that can of tuna. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of like the inefficiency of giving people stuff rather than giving people money. I think this needs to go back to the whole, we should just give people a basic income for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, because I'm thinking of, of a friend of ours who uh, gets a lot of support in the form of like food hampers and stuff at holidays. And a lot of the time she ends up having to give a lot of it away again because it's things that her kids will not eat or things that they are allergic to. And hmm. there's no real way for Winnipeg Harvest to keep a list of all of a family's allergies, right? And yeah. so she ends up giving away half of her hamper of food because it's not useful to her family. And that's mm-hmm. not efficient. That's ridiculous. So what I'm hearing is the biggest efficiency of all would be if we stopped means testing for everything. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> See our uh, previous episode on uh, solving homelessness. homelessness. <laughs> We did a great job on that one. <laughs> really proud of it. Speaking of Winnipeg Harvest, Laura and I are going to talk about some local and international charities that are popular this time of year. Uh, Winnipeg Harvest uh, being maybe less popular outside of Winnipeg, (laughs) but uh, close to home, it's a big one. Yeah, and it is worth noting, uh, for anybody who's not familiar with the province of Manitoba, there is one big city, it's Winnipeg. Uh, There's a couple of smaller cities that are definitely growing and have lots of stuff going on there, but when you're talking about a city, like a a center of the province, it is Winnipeg. So everything really comes back to Winnipeg. Sorry, everybody who doesn't live here, I (laughs) apologize. Out of the 1.1 million Manitobans, 800,000 live in Winnipeg. And surrounding communities, yes. Related note... It turns out that Winnipeg Harvest is the charitable organization, and Manitoba Harvest is the hemp seed growing operation. Yes. <laughs> do not be fooled. Yeah, yeah, please don't confuse the two. Very different things. <laughs> well, they sell delicious hemp parts. They do, but that's beside the point. So Winnipeg Harvest has been in operation for 31 years this year, I believe. It's one of the, it's not the oldest food bank in Canada, but is one of the oldest. Oh, wow. And it's, unfortunately, its usership keeps growing every year. Yeah. Winnipeg Harvest as well is a, a very, very large organization. It is it is a food bank, but it's also sort of a food distribution center for different points around the province. So it's not just serving the people of Winnipeg, but it sends food to many other communities to serve their food banks and soup kitchens and shelters and things like that as well. Um, I believe they do, they provide some food for meal programs for schools or programs here in the city as well. So if there is something relating to food donation, food charity in and around Winnipeg, Winnipeg Harvest is involved in some way, like by and large, they are. And so if you are interested in food charity and making sure that people have a way to eat for a day or two, um, as opposed to going hungry, then Winnipeg Harvest is going to be the organization that you're going to find yourself with. 
So it does receive a pretty good rating on charityintelligence.ca, which is a charity ranking site. Um, it has very low overhead and fundraising costs, and just about all of its revenues do go towards the programs, which is purchasing and distributing food. The bulk of its of the labor is volunteer work. On a personal note, my, my parents' church is a distribution point for a few families in the community, and my parents are actively involved in that. And uh, it's all volunteer work for most of the people from the distribution center all the way down to handing out the baskets on uh, distribution day. They don't spend a lot of dollars to get the the donations where it needs to go. Yeah, our church is a distribution center as well. Yeah, and, and that's very common. And, and part of that is that they're community places that are known to be public spaces and tend to have a lot of people involved that are willing to do volunteer work. So from the research I could find and from my own limited experience, people tend to have pretty positive experiences with Winnipeg Harvest overall. And like I said, even if you don't, there's really not a lot of other options mm -hmm. for the city as well. Uh, one of the big challenges with giving food, as you were talking about, Ashlyn, is that you can't control what you get and things like that. So the number of times that when I used to help my parents with the volunteering that I would walk in and they'd gotten the shipment of food and there is white bread filling the room. Oh. There is so much bread because the bakery needs to do something with it mm -hmm. and they'd rather not throw it in the, the bin because that looks terrible when it's in the dumpster. So mm -hmm. give it away. But that's all there was. So everybody's getting like eight loaves of white bread today. Mm -hmm. So you, you just kind of you get what you get and you have to give that. And part of the problem too is that they do get donations that are perishable as well from food companies, things like that. And food expires. So sometimes you do have to throw food out because the bananas, one time I opened up a box and the bananas were fuzzy gray. Oh. And so, I mean, it was destined to the right place, but the bananas went, right? And so you have to throw food out or there's just no more room so they have to throw it out or just give it away to people even if it's not regular distribution time or something like that they have to do something mm -hmm. with the food so there's a lot of challenges around the food like that there's also a lot of challenges in splitting things equally and fairly so if you have a distribution point usually you'll have somewhere between like 8 and 20 families that are receiving baskets so what happens if you only had like six cans of tuna and then you got a jar of peanut butter and maybe a can of pork and beans. Like, how do you decide who gets what? Do you try the best that you can, but you can't split a can of tuna between two families. Like, you can't do it. My, my dad was telling a story that they got these giant bags of pureed parsnips, like 10 kilos. <laughs> so it must have been a food service thing. Yeah, food yeah. service was trying to do the best that they could with this food that was going to go bad, right? But what on earth? Like, you can't split four bags of pureed parsnips between 10 families. So yeah, so they ended delicious. up... <laughs> <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> so sometimes it can seem like food may not be distributed fairly, but sometimes there isn't a way to do it. And there's also, there is a priority with these things. You know, children or families with children get certain nutritional priorities as opposed to people that uh, live with other people, but no children or people who are single. Overall, it rates pretty well. It spends its dollars doing what it is doing, um, what it says it's going to do. But it could do better if you gave them money instead of a couple of cans yes. of tuna or some mashed yes. parsnips. Exactly. You know, the number of times that I see the 12 packs of craft Dinner because they were on sale and that's what went into the bin. And they're like, okay, well, most people eat craft Dinner once in a while, but let's get the fish or the beans or whatever it is that they were really asking for. 
another criticism of Winnipeg Harvest that I personally have after joining a lot of um, a Facebook groups geared towards helping people who are hungry is that Winnipeg Harvest, and it, this isn't what they're designed for, right? But they, they will not give you food if you are in an emergency. That's not what they're there for. But because it is the only place that a lot of people know about, especially in Manitoba, it's it's the one-stop shop for mm-hmm. if you need food and you're hungry and you are out of resources. People right. think, well, you know, I'm desperate. I'm down to my last can of formula and my baby has nothing to eat. Can I get a hold of them? No, you can make an appointment for two weeks from now. And then we will put you on a list and we will get you into one of these distribution centers and maybe you'll have food next month. And so, I don't know, I've, I've seen so many stories of people saying, you know, yes, I called Winnipeg Harvest and they gave me this appointment, but I'm really hungry now. Does anybody have anything they can give me? I feel like that's not exactly a failing of Winnipeg Harvest as it is, like, other structures around it. Like, sure. It, it is a very, I think it is a different problem to try and sustain, yeah. like, long-term sustainably give people food versus emergency food. Like, it would be great if they also did that, though. It really would. <laughs> yeah. It'd be great if we had a mi- basic minimum income. So <laughs> right. Didn't, so yeah. this wasn't a problem at all. Yeah. Well, yeah. like, it would still be a problem occasionally with income yeah. because, you know, you have somebody mm-hmm. moves somewhere and then you're not on the you, list. It would or, greatly yeah. reduce. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah, I guess I just wish that there was... Because they know that this is a problem, that there was some way... Some offshoot that dealt with emergency situations. Yeah. Or so. if, if they would at least direct people to that kind of help, like agape table or something. Yeah. You know, it's not their job, technically. I just, it seems like something that is under their umbrella. But yeah, that's just something I've heard. The other criticism that I've heard in the past, and I don't know if it's still true, is that at a lot of these distribution centers, uh, people were noticing that the people who were volunteering would sort of take the first round of it, like the good stuff out of the donations and they would get to take it home. And then everybody getting those baskets would get the leftovers. And that was something that I heard as a criticism for a few years. But That's the kind of thing that I, without a lot of investigative journalism, which yeah. I am not an investigative journalist. Who knew? You know, I, I really can't substantiate or, you know... Yeah confirm or deny any any kind of claims like that. You're going to get something like that with volunteer organizations. And that's yes. what I was going yeah. to say. And especially with such a large organization that relies so heavily on volunteers, you know, it's... Some things like that are probably going to happen. And hopefully it's a thing that if it does, maybe, like, the problem gets rectified. Yeah. You know? And especially because there's just so many of these distribution centers. Yeah. It's, it's probably not a widespread problem. Let's hope that it's a few bad apples and not the basket. But a few bad apples will spoil the basket. That's what the saying is about. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Brendan. So why don't we talk about the Salvation Army? I mean, their bell ringers are ubiquitous this time of year. Uh, You know, you try to slide past them without making eye contact, but you can't always do it. So... The Salvation Army is an evangelical Protestant church founded by Methodist minister William Booth in 1865. Seeing himself as a soldier in God's army, and that's never turned out badly, Booth styled himself as the general, giving fellow ministers who joined ranks as officers. Lay members of the organization, which reports a worldwide membership of over 1.5 million Salvationists, are referred to as soldiers. First they militarized the police, then they militarized the church. 
although very, very much in that opposite order by thousands <laughs> upon thousands of years. <laughs> Otherwise, the point stands. The goal of the army is to bring salvation to the poor and destitute by meeting both their physical and spiritual needs. An aim that the Salvation Army accomplishes by running charity shops and shelters and by providing disaster relief and humanitarian aid in developing countries. The Salvation Army has been consistently dogged for years by allegations of homophobia, claims that the organization dismisses as a myth. Uh, listeners may remember that the Salvation Army was the subject of increased scrutiny after a statement made in 2012 by the Media Relations Director for the Salvation Army Australia Southern Territory, Andrew Crabe. Crabe was asked about the fact that the Salvation Army's Handbook of Doctrine cites Romans 1, 18-32, which includes this passage. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another, Men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. That sounds hot. <laughs> oh, I had to Worst read the King James Version because it's just... Ever. As this tweet I'm reading says, it's called the Bible, not the straight bolt. <laughs> oh my god. The passage goes on to state that... Such things are worthy of death. When asked to clarify the Salvation Army's position on homosexuality in light of this passage, Crabe replied, Well, that's a part of our belief system. We have an alignment to the scriptures, and that's our belief. As a result of the ensuing backlash, the Church hastily clarified that homosexuality only led to a spiritual death. They don't deserve to die exactly, they're just dead to God, I guess. The Salvation Army sincerely apologizes to all members of the GLBT community and to all our clients, employees, volunteers, and those who are part of our faith communities for the offense caused by this miscommunication. <laughs> miscommunication. That same year, Danny Morantes, a Salvation Army employee in Vermont, reported that she was fired for being bisexual and in an open marriage. She was asked to sign an employee handbook a few months after she was hired, and the handbook noted that while employees wouldn't be fired based on their sexual orientation, they could be fired for acting on same-sex attraction. Morantes felt guilty signing the document, so she told her boss. She said that her supervisor was very gracious and thanked her for being so transparent. She was assured that it wouldn't impact her employment. But then a few days later, she walked into the office to find both of her supervisors in tears. According to Morantes, they said they were so sorry but it came from above them, and they had to fire me, and that they had to walk me off the property right away. So here is Salvation Army Canada's statement on discrimination. The Salvation Army does not discriminate in the delivery of our community and social services. Anyone who comes to the Salvation Army will receive assistance based solely on their need and our capacity to help, regardless of race, disability, sexual orientation, gender identity, age, or religion. We uphold the dignity of all people, believing that all are equal in the eyes of God, and firmly oppose the mistreatment of any person. The Salvation Army does not discriminate in our hiring process. Our hiring process respects the non-discrimination principles of the human rights codes across Canada. In addition, we adhere to all relevant employment laws providing domestic partner benefits accordingly. In 2014, an internal memo from Paul Seeler, Midwest Commissioner for the American Salvation Army, was leaked. It was addressing... LGBT issues in light of equality of marriage laws. And it read in part, 
Leadership roles in denominational activities, such as teaching or holding local officer roles, require certain adherence to consistently held spiritual beliefs. This would apply to any conduct inconsistent with Salvation Army beliefs and would include same-sex sexual relationships. Salvation Army policy requires strict monogamy and mandates celibacy for all unmarried officers. Whether they recognize same-sex marriage seems to depend on who you ask, with different officials providing different answers at different times. So this particular memo came just after the Supreme Court decided that marriage equality was happening across the United States. So again, from the leaked memo. For anyone in a Salvation Army ministry position, the theological belief regarding sexuality is that God has ordained marriage to be between one man and one woman, and a sexual activity is restricted to one's spouse. Non-married individuals would therefore be celibate in the expression of their sexuality. This is the long-standing expectation of all individuals in ministry roles in the Salvation Army, including lay people. So this memo seems to indicate that, at least in the American Midwest, the Salvation Army wouldn't recognize the marriage between partners of the same sex, and thus would expect them to remain celibate in order to remain employed. There were also allegations in 2014 that the American Salvation Army refused to help a homeless transgender woman. Just this year, Commissioner Clive Adams, the head of Salvation Army UK, confirmed that gay members could not serve as officers in the organization. You wouldn't be allowed to be a member, he said, speaking to TV host Paul O'Grady, who is gay. You could volunteer for us, you could come to our church services, but if you want to become a soldier in the Salvation Army, you have to commit to what we believe. Bottom line, it's a Methodist church. Choose how you donate accordingly. So that's actually a good question for the panel. How important is the secularity of a charity? Because I know the line that I draw is so long as the religiosity of the organization is confined to this is why we want to help people, th that doesn't bother me in the slightest. But as soon as you know you have to sit through a church service or a sermon or whatever in order to for us to help you, then that 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 immediately crosses a line for me. Yeah, like we do the Habitat for Humanity thing every mm -hmm. year, and they're nominally a religious organization. Yep. And like you say, religion is sort of the reason that they are helping people. But nobody has to do anything religious or express any sort of religion in order to get their help or in order to serve with them, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, and in fact, mm -hmm. we, you know, when we go build with them, they welcome us. Oh, hey, it's the skeptics again. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, so <laughs> they let us pose in front of their religion sign. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm fine with that. But you know, I I actively campaign against giving money to the Salvation Army because of their policies and and the things that they've said in the past. And especially there was um, a young friend of mine who makes beautiful jewelry, and I, I met him recently at a Viking festival. And he was talking on Facebook about how he and his husband are donating a bunch of the profits from each of their pieces sold to the Salvation Army. And I was just like, hey, sweetie, are you aware of their policies? Are you sure that's where you want to donate that money? And he read the article and was like, wow, okay, new charity. <laughs> I think whether or not something is secular in some ways we need to take into account how many other organizations there are doing that same kind of work in that place as well so yeah. for example if there's a place I, I'm thinking of the city here where there's several different homeless shelters some of I believe they're all 
um, religious in nature, but some are more religious, like some groups are more religious than others in their actions. And so if you have a variety to choose from, and they're doing similar work, then I think the secularity of something comes like comes into play a lot more there. Sure. But if there's really only one thing, I mean, if it's a very extreme example that's making people sit through services or, you know, get baptized mm-hmm. in order to access that, then that's that's a big problem. But if there's only one organization in a place doing a thing and it is sectarian, you know, is it better to say, well, I don't want to support them, but then that would mean that then there's less support for the one group doing anything for those people. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like you have to kind of look at what you're looking at doing, who's providing the services, and adjust your expectations accordingly. So I think we have one more charity to cover in depth. Lauren, you want to tell us all about... World Vision. Well, if anybody else around the table is like me, I was introduced to World Vision from Sunday morning infomercials on those rare Sundays when we didn't go to church. And it was either Jack Van Impey Presents or uh, World Vision. Or Alex Trebek Presents. Yes, absolutely. But sometimes there were other people on there. I mostly remember like the five minute long commercials that were mostly like staring into the eyes of a child that had flies all over them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember Alex Trebek sitting with like a very uncomfortable looking boy on his lap and... Yeah. Kept getting mad when the boy answered in the form of an answer instead of a question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. Oh boy. Yes. Somebody just pointed out to me. I hadn't noticed it. Ooh. You didn't phrase it in the form of a question. How much is it going to cost you? So that's how I was introduced to it. And one of the things that pretty much anybody who knows anything about World Vision can tell you is that you will sponsor a child. You'll get sort of a symbolic son or daughter or maybe a brother or sister or niece or nephew. You'll get a picture of them. You can write them letters and communicate. And they become almost like a part of your family. And you can think of it that way. And your dollars go towards that child's life and their education. So this is what I remember growing up. And this has been how World Vision has advertised its charitable work for the last 50 some odd years. By treating people like puppies that you keep in a different country. Yeah. I remember begging my parents, like, we need to adopt one of these children. They're going to (laughs) die. Right. And I remember as a kid, obviously my understanding of how the world works was much less robust than it is now. But the way that they played it, watching it, it sounded almost like an adoption or or like a foster sibling, because I knew what a foster sibling was. So it sounded almost like that. I thought, wow, that seems like a really easy thing. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) It's not. So World Vision is a Christian organization. Uh, And they are very clear in all of their advertising and FAQ and about us section on their on their website and policies and that. And what they are is a development and aid organization. So they have numerous projects in many countries around the world, uh, typically in developing nations. um, And they they do things all the way from humanitarian aid to clean water efforts to agricultural development as well. When they go into an area, they commit for a long term. So typically, they plan to be in the community for about 15 years. So they aren't 
going in for just disaster relief and then pulling out as soon as, you know, the hurricane's over or whatever it happens to be. They are committing to be there for the long term. And they do a lot of work in not just being there and giving things out, but helping the community grow and providing lasting things. So clean water, for example, making sure that the wells are clean and safe so that people will have clean water for many, many years to come. So they're not just trucking in water from elsewhere and that would disappear or agricultural development, making sure that people have the skills and the tools and the things that they need to have an agricultural part of their economy and and continue that. So that's what they do. So there's a bit of a disconnect there because their advertising is very, very strongly sponsor this child and this child will get these things. But when you read into it and you find out what they really do, that's not how it works Mm -hmm. at all. As I was doing my research, found some interesting information about this whole child sponsorship thing. So the typical people who are sponsoring these kids are Westerners, North Americans, some Europeans, I'm thinking, um, Australia, apparently, it's very common to sponsor as well. And we're very heavily sold on that notion. Sponsor this child, develop a personal relationship, you're encouraged to write them letters, things like that. However, those children are not necessarily even really aware that they're part of this. There's some interesting stories saying that when World Vision is deciding to go into an area, they'll just take pictures of all the kids and put those up as kids to sponsor. And those kids aren't even aware and their families aren't even necessarily aware that their children are being sponsored by someone else. That is horribly unethical. It is. That is treating them like they're not really people. That's disgusting. Right. So there's two problems with this. I mean, only two. Not two, two. But okay, so on, on two sides, there's obviously a lot of problems. On the side of the people in these uh, areas where World Vision is going in and, and doing community partnerships, they're not necessarily informed that they're children are being used in this way, whether or not they'd be okay with that. It's not clear that they're being informed that way. So if they do receive letters or packages from these sponsor families, they don't understand why are these people sending things in a language that I don't understand. I mean, World Vision is helping us do this, this, and that, and building this, this, and this. Like, what what does this have to do in a thing? So it creates a lot of confusion and just, why are you doing this? And less importantly, but still it becomes an issue down the road, is on the side of the sponsors, people are feeling really lied to because they're expecting that it's this kid that they're caring about and they're developing, you know, I want to sponsor a kid. I want this. I want their picture on my fridge. And so when they find out that, oh, actually the money goes to the community where we're putting together this type of industry or project or whatever it is, People feel that they've been lied to, like I said, and that's causing some people to pull their funding because they thought it was this specific kid. Money's actually going to the community. Well, I'm lied to. So it's actually a net negative because now there's less money going to the community to whatever project was happening as well. Of course, there's more problems to it than that, but it's causing a problem on both ends because they're not being upfront about what's going Mm -hmm. on. And it seems like the thing that they're actually doing, at least on surface level, sounds really good. It's a way better thing than sponsoring a specific child. Of course. They do a good thing and then they sort of ruin it with duplicity. Right. Yeah. Say what you're doing. If they could say, you know, we're, we're working here, we're working on drilling wells and making sure the community has infrastructure and and how knows has the skills to keep the wells clean and like all these things you know glamour shots of 12 of the children yeah your donations these are all the families that like so then it's up front so there's so there's definitely problems with that because yeah like you said there's a lot of good programs and and the people 
who have said, you know, I don't like that my picture was used, but World Vision did a good thing here. They were good to work with. We were happy that they came. It's very like a savior mentality, though, that they have yeah. the right to take those photos and use them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It really, it really is. Because I always wondered when I was a kid, well, what if you're sponsoring one kid and their siblings don't get sponsored? Do the siblings still get to go to the school? Do they still get, like, get meals? <laughs> Can I drink so-and-so's fresh water or do I have to drink the bond water? Yeah. This is what went through my head. Is like yeah. I honestly had never thought about that. I don't know why I didn't think about it. I think I just take things at face value a little bit too often. What I did realize, though, is in doing this research, is that a lot of people use that as the main argument against World Vision when that's not actually at all what happens. Yeah. That a lo- So many people just don't understand because of the way they market themselves that that's not at all what they do. So a lot of people say World Vision's bad because of this. It's like, well, actually, that's not happening either. So My best guess is they painted themselves kind of into a corner, and they found that with this sponsoring kids, they probably got way more donations because it is much less abstract, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you can pick a kid. And so now they're like, well, we don't want to lose all of these donations. Which they saw, like, right. because people have when they've found out, so they sort of have to keep up the facade. Now... As I mentioned, they are a Christian organization, and they do not hide that fact whatsoever. No. It's very prominent. Um, they do state that that is a driving factor in what they do, and that they believe that they're doing God's work, and that's their belief, and that's fine. But it's unclear exactly how much proselytizing they do. They do say that they do not proselytize. They believe in their Christian values and that, but that is not their goal. They do say that they are coming from a Christian perspective and such. They will talk about faith in places where it is culturally appropriate. They are happy to and do work with groups of other religions and backgrounds as well and are happy to learn and work from each other in those places. So that's a paraphrasing of their official statement. So that's all fine and good. From what I could find, the line does seem to be fairly blurry because they do offer a lot of education. And from several reports, it does seem that a lot of Christian education does make its way in there. Now, in some places where they do a lot of work, Christianity is by far the dominant religion and very Mm -hmm. common. Mm -hmm. So in those places, I can't actually comment on how appropriate that is and how more or less religious an education might have been if it wasn't them, if it was somebody else doing it. I will say, though, that on their website, you can sponsor a child for $39 a month. Uh, You can also buy Bibles and have those given out. So the line on proselytizing there is pretty blurry at that point. How much is it to buy a Bible? $18. Okay, so they obviously aren't paying $18 a Bible. Yeah. I'm sure it does not cost that much to print a Bible. But you gotta ship stuff. Yeah, but a lot of that money is gonna go back into their programs, too. Yeah, and and that's the thing, you know, like, a lot of those Christmas giving campaigns, World Vision is a big one, that's the whole, you know, give a kid a goat thing. You can buy two chickens and a goat for $50 or whatever it happens to be. You're not actually buying them two chickens and a goat, you're giving $50, and that is the equivalent. But that's another story. It's common, we we do a charitable thing when we get together with family friends uh, at Christmas, and people are always like agonizing should we get a goat should we should we get two chickens this time i'm like guys it doesn't matter they don't actually do that and if you read the fine print at the bottom of those yeah. lovely catalogs the it says same, like yeah. equivalent to dollars yeah. <laughs> but it's still kind of fun to be like yes i gave them a goat and that's yeah. why they do it because yeah. people want to give things yeah. like you or said or to know right? like this is some much... value right so the proselytizing line 
it's it's not clear. Now, I will say in doing my research, I found a number of Christian websites that claim that World Vision doesn't do enough proselytizing. <laughs> so there's there's that. You know, they're they're upset that they are a humanitarian organization first and evangelical organization second. So, you know, take from that what you will. There was a recent controversy in 2014 where World Vision in the United States decided to reverse its policy on allowing people who are in same-sex marriages to work for them. So they decided to allow them to work for them. For two days. So what happened is they decided to change this, and the major donors, right-wing donors, got very angry and pulled so much funding that World Vision in the United States... Two days later, went back to not allowing people in same-sex relationships and marriages to work for them. Americans, you're ridiculous. Yeah. Now, I will say World Vision is an international organization. It's huge. It has chapters in many, many countries. The money does funnel into World Vision International, where it then gets distributed to different programs. But I will say for us Canadians, LGBTQ... I don't remember all the letters, I'm sorry, but everybody <laughs> everybody is welcome to work there, and people living in same-sex marriages, relationships, and that are allowed to work there because we have laws that protect that. So uh, that is not the case in Canada, in case anybody was, was worried about it. It's just in the places where it's not written into legislation, protecting those uh, that as human rights. So... In the end, you're not sponsoring a child. You are supporting community development and long-term community development. There is probably an ample dose of Christianity provided, but it's hard to tell exactly how much and where. And in the U.S., they have some really bad employment policies. It is worth noting, actually, that in 2011, speaking of the employment practices of World Vision, uh, World Vision fought to the Supreme Court. Uh, They took a case to the Supreme Court, and they won the right to fire uh, workers and support staff that did not share their uh, religious beliefs. They had to seek exemption from anti-discrimination laws in order to do this, and World Vision's argument was that they could not fulfill their Christian mission if there were internal theological differences that were allowed. Because for some reason, people imagine that you can have a theology that is not internally inconsistent one individual to another, (laughs) which no church has ever had in the history of forever. (laughs) No, they're schisms, Jim. Yes, I know. Whenever anybody disagrees, they go start a new church. Right. That is a very strong Christian tradition Mm -hmm. as well. Rather than having a a background of discussing and working through and and, but staying together. No, I don't like the way that you interpret this line. I'm out of here. I'm taking my ball and going home. (laughs) I was in San Francisco once walking along the Golden Gate Bridge. And I saw this guy in the bridge about to jump. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you, you silly ninny. He said, I do believe in God. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too, Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too, what franchise? He says, Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He says, Northern Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He says, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. I said, me too. 
nor the conservative fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region, nor, nor the conservative fundamentalist Baptist Eastern region. He says, nor the conservative fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Nor the conservative fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region Council of 1879, nor, nor the conservative fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region Council of 1912. He says, nor the conservative fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic. And I pushed him over. Anytime you have to seek exemption from non-discrimination laws. Like, you have to look at yourself and be like, am I being the asshole here? Yes, I am. Because there being new precedent written just for my jerkiness. Yeah, Hobby Lobby. Have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them? <laughs> I don't, so... Hands. Are we the baddies? <laughs> So we've had lots of CanCon so far this episode. Uh, for our listeners abroad, that's Canada Speak for Canadian content. But given the incoming administration down south, we'd be remiss if we didn't give one more name check to the American Civil Liberties Union and Planned Parenthood, probably, uh, among the many, many other charitable causes that will hopefully help people who are likely to be negatively impacted by President Trump. Also probably worth mentioning specific, like, trans rights charities. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will have a list of those in the show notes. Uh, for Canadians who may have similar concerns, the northern analog of the ACLU is the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, which can be found at ccla.org. And while some clinics in Canada may use the name Planned Parenthood, they're not actually associated with the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. So Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights is a progressive pro-choice charitable organization that focuses on upholding sexual and reproductive health and rights uh, in Canada and around the world, and they can be found at sexualhealthandrights.ca. idea of a post-holiday giving slump where, you know, we've all spent all of our money and we've eaten all the turkey and had too much to drink and we just kind of stop caring about other people until December rolls around again. And I wouldn't really call it so much of a slump as a reset happens after January 1st. Now, it is true that many, many charities, most charities, large and small, receive anywhere between 25 and 50 percent of their donations from October to December wow. of every single year. Um, it's generally 30 to 40 percent, but for some it can be uh, much more than that. According to CanadaHelps.org, which is a charity promotion and online giving platform specifically for getting small charities recognition, it's sort of a place that you can go and you can look at the charities that are registered and say, I want to donate here, here and here. And it gives them a place to advertise themselves as well. According to them, um, on average, their charities receive 36% of their total funds in December alone. 10% of total funds in the last three days of December, and 5.5% of total funds on December 31st. So everybody's going for that sweet, sweet tax rebate. Yes, and that's probably the biggest driver, quite honestly. The tax year ends at uh, 11 
5959 59 on uh, December 31st. Not this year. There's a leap second. <laughs> <laughs> Thank so you, Brendan. At 11.59.60. I'll make sure to click my mouse one second later. This is why it was important I was a guest this week. <laughs> So if you want your donation to be counted towards your tax return and perhaps get a little bit of deductions from it, you have to do it before the end of the year. So a lot of people, like most people, are procrastinators. And then we realize, oh, shoot, the year's ending today. I better do something about that. So that's probably a lot of what goes into it. As well, we're often encouraged from a lot of our cultural and religious backgrounds to give at times of holidays. And our major holidays here in, in Canada are Thanksgiving and Christmas. Thanksgiving, we're supposed to give thanks for what we have and be thankful. So we start the idea of giving. And then Christmas, of course, is a time to be very charitable. And so that's just a, that's a part of our culture. And they lump together between October and December. So that's part of what drives up donations at that time as well. And it's theorized that less giving during the summer, maybe people plan to do all their giving at Christmas time anyway, they don't plan to do it throughout the year. So they're just not thinking about it in the summertime, they're busy with their own lives, vacations, kids are off school, yada, yada. So what I would rather describe it as is sort of a slow build up and then a big push at the end and then the year resets and it's the same thing and it's a very predictable pattern and and charities know this and so they try to plan as best as they can but it's still difficult to make money throughout the year make it last and and things like that but it's not so much that people don't care anymore it's that they've kind of planned to or forget until December 31st and then do all their donating then and then do the same thing so year after year. So auto-deductions to charities is a really great thing. Auto-deductions, yeah. monthly things. So think about what, if you would normally give X amount at Christmas time, can you split it up through 12 months of the year and, and donate it that way? Or that will help like the that. charity much more. And it's, just, yeah. it's probably more helpful to you as well. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. Because it's harder to find $500. I mean, not everybody's donating that. But it's harder to find a lump sum, especially at an already expensive time of year, than it is to find a few dollars more frequently through yeah. the year. I don't even notice it because it comes off my check before I get my money. <laughs> oh, yeah. If, and if you have a workplace that does that, it, it's so easy. Because people are more likely to do mm -hmm. that, right? You don't have to make a second decision about it. You made it once. It's done. You can budget accordingly. You yeah. go from there. Yeah. So try to donate year-round. But charities also know that they are going to get their push at a certain time of year. And there's actually something that's started up in the last couple of years. You may have heard about it. It's called Giving Tuesday. So we've all heard of Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Giving Tuesday is the day after Cyber Monday. So um, when you're out that money. So since you're already, you know, running that credit card through things, why not run it through one more and help out, uh, help out a worthy cause? I think it would be better, like, the Wednesday before the American Thanksgiving. Yeah. So that way you give and then you start spending on yourself. Well, but that seems me. kind of desperate. Like, that way you can also okay. be thankful for yourself for having given that money. <laughs> but it's got a hashtag, guys. That makes it cool and great, right? Hashtag? Well-being <laughs> well Wednesday hashtag. Well-being Wednesday. There you go. And now, like any good holiday special, we're going to cut costs by reusing old footage. At least we're not going full-blown clip show, because we all know how that turns out. He's reliving memories. It's a natural side effect of neural stimulation. So we're going to end this show with a clip from episode 72, which was one of our earlier War on Christmas episodes from a few years ago. 
On this show, we have Rochelle McCullough, who's one of our founding panelists, Ian James, our musical director, although at the time he hadn't been married yet, so he went by Ian Leung, and Jeffrey Olson, a former Anglican priest and past president of the Humanist Association. And then, then you know, I'm there too. Uh, and we, we're talking there about the history of the nativity story. hoping is starting with you Ian oh, Lord. I'd like to have uh, each of you recite your understanding of the nativity story you know birth of Jesus and like that and I just want to see uh, how these stories line up so oh, Ian right. regale us with the birth of our Lord <laughs> yeah because that's not putting me on the spot or anything is it hey we're all on the spot now <laughs> okay well here it is okay so um, I went to Sunday school as a kid so from what I understand there was a star in the east, correct, uh, that the shepherds saw, and obviously that was supposed to signify the birth of a new king, and Mary was, ah, geez, I don't know if they were on vacation or something, or whatever, (laughs) but they were out and about, and uh, she was pregnant by no no fault of Joseph's, (laughs) and they couldn't find a place to stay, so they had to stay in in the barn or what have you, and uh, simultaneously, the wise men who saw the star in the east had to go there to witness the birth of the new king and to bring him presents. And then, I guess it happened. She had the baby, and, and, and the wise men showed up and gave the presents, and that's everything was obviously, from that point up until now, 100% perfect. All right. The gospel according to Ian. Yes. Uh, Rochelle, do you want to go next? Since Jeff was a priest, I think we'll, we'll let him go last. So it doesn't spoil the one. Yeah, he has an unfair advantage here. Okay, so an archangel, possibly Michael, appears to Mary and is all scary and stuff, and then tells her not to be frightened and that she's going to be pregnant and have a baby and it's going to be Jesus and he's going to be the Son of God. And uh, she happens to be alone when all this is happening, and so then she goes to her husband, Joseph, and lets him know that this is what's going on, and he's totally credulous and buys this as the most plausible explanation for her pregnancy. And then nine months later, they're chilling out, and then they need to go pay their taxes for some reason, which they need to do in the town of Joseph's birth, even though that's not what happened, but okay, that's what the story says. So uh, they take their donkey and they truck on over to Bethlehem and they get there and there's no room at the inn or possibly inns and they're turned away until one innkeeper I think like says well I don't have any room but you can sleep in the stable which kind of seems like more of an insult than generosity to me but hey whatever and yeah so she gives birth to Jesus and lays him in the manger which is just basically a trough for hay Then, yeah, the star that the wise men are following show up and they bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I think there's also some shepherds and some angels in there, but I don't remember. And a drummer. Oh, and possibly a little drummer boy who only made it into the story in, like, the 19th century, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jeff. All right, well... Please correct us all. No, I can't really correct you. The the problem I have, and I learned this, you know, way back in the day, is that the Gospels don't say the same thing about the nativity. Uh Uh, And so I've struggled with this, but 
if, if you want to pick a story out of the Bible that is written in all of the Gospels, what you'll find in any movie or any uh, chronological recitation of that story, you're going to find differences from one, one author to another because what they have to do is pick and choose which details are going to come from which book. It sounds to me like the, the two of you basically got the high points along the road. You know, the, the idea that the angel Gabriel came along and, and said to... It was to, Gabriel. It was Gabriel, yeah. So basically, if, if you were to read Luke, the, the, the nativity starts before Jesus was born. And like John the Baptist was in the womb and he, he jumped. And like it's, it's you know, when, when uh, uh, Mary met, uh, I can't remember John the Baptist's mother's name, but you get my point. You know, it, and so on and so forth. And so the, the story goes on, and then there's the great census, and they have to flee. I don't know if you remember the census, but they ha they had to flee because they were they were afraid that uh, they were going to uh, have the child hurt. And and the the she was pregnant, and away they went. And and uh, anyway, you basically get the story from there. You know, they end up in the manger in the trough. And that's where the baby is. So what? So what Jeff is uh, getting at is that uh, a lot of these stories have been harmonized, synthesized together. So among the four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of the synoptic gospels—that's Matthew and Luke—tell of the events surrounding Jesus' birth. The earliest synoptic gospel, Mark, doesn't have a nativity story, nor does the latest gospel. But John is kind of an odd duck all around. Yeah, so, the, the gospel of John focuses on things Jesus said more than anything yeah. else. I'm just going to go through both the Matthew and Luke accounts and so we can highlight the differences here. So here's a story uh, according to Matthew, unharmonized. An angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, Mary's pregnant, but no need to divorce her. It's from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the reign of Herod. We can presume that since there was no account of how he got to Bethlehem, that's where Jesus and Mary and Joseph were from. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem during the reign of Herod. Wise men, seeing his star, come to Jerusalem and inform Herod that uh, the, this king has been born. Uh, the wise men journey on, bringing gifts to Jesus in Bethlehem. Warned in a dream, Joseph and his family flee from Bethlehem to Egypt. And then Herod, fearing this future king of the Jews, commences the massacre of the innocents. So he slaughters all of the young children, I think it's children under the age of two in the region. Wait, they left that out of my children's Bible illustrated? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of death and mayhem in there. I wasn't sure how to handle it. <laughs> Sorry, continue, Jim. So eventually Herod dies uh, and informed, again in a dream uh, of Herod's death, Joseph takes his family back out of Egypt. Well, he, he's afraid to go to Judea, so instead he takes his family to make a home in Nazareth, in oh, Galilee. See, I, just, I had the census in there. My apologies. There you go. So much for being an expert on anything. The census will come in in Luke. Yeah, okay. So as Herod the Great ruled Judea from 37 BCE to 4 BCE, Matthew places the birth of Jesus uh, at 4 BCE at the very latest. Okay? So Jesus was actually born four years before Jesus. And uh, despite ample historical record of Herod being a pretty pretty evil dude, uh, there is actually no extra-biblical contemporary source that mentions the Massacre of the Innocents, so it probably never happened. Okay, so that's the story according to Matthew. Now let's talk about Luke. As was mentioned, Gabriel comes to Mary, not Joseph, and tells her that she's pregnant. And we have a census that requires Joseph and a pregnant Mary to go from their home in Nazareth over to the town of Bethlehem where Jesus is then born, uh, because apparently the census requires that all citizens go to their ancestral homeland, you know, where their great-great-great-grandparents or whatever lived. There is no room at the inn, 
And uh, so Mary uh, places the newborn Jesus in a manger. Nearby shepherds are told these events by angels, and the shepherds come and visit the family. After about a month or so, Jesus is taken to a temple in Jerusalem, to, sorry, to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and there, Simeon and Anna praise Jesus, and soon after, Joseph and Mary return to their home in Nazareth. So, uh, as the census of Quirinius, uh, the only historical match for the census mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, actually took place in 6 or 7 CE, Luke's Gospel places the birth of Jesus at 6 CE at the earliest, which is almost a decade after the death of Herod, in direct contradiction to the account in Matthew. Uh, also, the idea of families being forced to relocate to their ancestral homelands for the purpose of, of a census makes literally no sense. If you're going to levy taxes, which is why they were doing the census in the first place, you'd want to know where people do live, not where their ancestors lived. And although <laughs> perhaps people didn't mix all that much back then, it's certainly conceivable that someone could have grandparents from two different regions. So where would they go then? <laughs> so both stories have Jesus born in Bethlehem, and both have him making his home in Nazareth. Matthew has them living there after their return from Egypt, while in Luke they've lived there all along, but uh, they had to go to Bethlehem for Jesus' birth. Uh, but aside from these two similarities, the stories are completely different. You'll notice, Ian, you mentioned the star that uh, was being followed, and that account is from Matthew. There is no room at the inn, you said, so that's from Luke. There's no mention of Jesus being placed in a manger in in Matthew, uh, and wise men bringing presents and seeing the star, that's in Matthew, but you mentioned shepherds as well, that's in Luke. Uh, and Rochelle, you had the archangel Gabriel appearing to Mary, which is oh, from Luke. You had uh, the taxes, which is again from Luke. Then you had the no room at the inn, again from Luke. So it's, it seems like your account was almost entirely from Luke, because you had no slaughter of the, uh, the innocents. That's interesting. Yeah, um, I, I do remember, like, my, my grandmother was very Anglican, and so we would uh, go to the, the Christmas service at the Anglican church, and would they would read directly from the Bible, so... So, so you didn't get it from the Charlie Brown Christmas, which I think is where most people... <laughs> <laughs> no. So biblical scholars, uh, such as Bart Ehrman, argue that the most reasonable explanation for the Bethlehem and Nazareth commonalities between the two accounts are that uh, when the Gospels were written, Jesus was known to have come from Nazareth. But the Old Testament prophecy in Micah 5.2 said that the ruler of the Jews would come from Bethlehem. So these two facts needed to be reconciled, and both Luke and Matthew went about placing Jesus in both Bethlehem and Nazareth in different ways. But why would he send him to Egypt in between? Ah, see, that's that's interesting uh, because that uh, that makes Jesus more um, uh, palatable to uh, potential Jewish uh, worshippers because it, it turns Jesus into a Moses figure. Uh, if you remember the story of Moses. Yeah, so, I was about to say that that and the uh, the Herod story as well is very reminiscent of the Moses story. Absolutely. Not only that, you know, Jesus is raised by at least one uh, parent who is not his own, and he, he comes back out of Egypt. There's the, the uh, slaughter of the children and like that. So it makes Jesus into a very familiar prophetic figure, which I suppose might have been helpful in attaining uh, Jewish converts to this new cult of Christianity. Very interesting. I love the way that you broke that out. Oh, thanks. Well done. <laughs> Huzzah! Ah, that was a good clip!
I recommend that people go and check out that episode because, you know, it was pretty great. I have so much fun getting together with you folks and recording episodes in person that I forget that, you know, now and again we did put out a pretty good episode back when we recorded online, too. Now and again. <laughs> There's a reason that we have listeners, I guess. Speaking of our listeners, we have thousands of listeners to the podcast on a regular basis. And we have dozens of reviews, maybe not even dozens of reviews. So if you want to give us a gift this holiday season, uh, well, first of all, give money to charity. They need it. Don't give us money. We don't, what are we, what are we going to use money for? Uh, but if you <laughs> want... Hosting costs. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we do need to host this podcast. It's coming off my credit card again soon. But give us the gift of a review, please. We would love a review on iTunes or on Stitcher, or Google will eventually have review support on their store. <laughs> they still don't. I know, just Yelp the podcast. Yeah, Yelp the <laughs> podcast. Check in on Foursquare. It's Hive now. Foursquare spun out. Anyway, spread the word. We love all of our listeners, and uh, thanks for listening. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? We're going to talk about how humans evaluate risk, i.e. badly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for joining me tonight, everybody, and special thanks to Brendan. We always love it when you come on the show. He gives us a book list. Yeah. <laughs> Only one book this time. Oh, wow. We're disappointed Whew. in you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a jerk. You are. <laughs> Happy holidays, everybody. See you next year. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. As always, our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, with additional inserts this month from John Darneal, the Wu-Tang Clan, and B. Arthur. This episode was edited by Jem Newman. Sir, I protest. I am not a merry man. It's been a true weekend. <clears throat> my makeup's running, and my hair's out of place, and I'm covered in somebody else's spittle. How come they don't make adult bjorns? <laughs> <laughs> One of the first things I remember you doing is eating ice cream cake off of your MacBook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we didn't have enough plates. Well, like Full disclosure. I, yeah, exactly. In the interest of disclosure rather than blowing my own trumpet. <laughs> it is a... Uh, but I, I, the, the Americanism is tooting your own horn. The Britishism is blowing your own trumpet, which I always found hilarious. You don't blow into a trumpet. You buzz. <laughs> Buzzing your own trumpet. It's important to have that lip shape right. The embouchure. Speaking of politics... I believe Brendan is going to uh, talk about insert insert. <laughs> you are going to tell us about uh, insert segment here. That's right. <laughs> Speaking of insert segment here, this segment. <laughs> Huxley wants to get in on the conversation. So he has the the I want to say the Zuckerberg Chan Foundation. I should have looked up its specific I, name. We can pause to Google it. Google, 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 Google. He has the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative with his wife, whose name I don't remember. I'll cut that part out. Now, it might sound like I'm about to say that all people who are billionaires are bad people. 
That's what I'm going to say. It is impossible <laughs> to have a billion dollars without having made that money by exploiting other people. Yeah, also, the $3 billion to solve all diseases this century is... it's baffling! Effective altruism is basically living your charity. For lack of a better word, it is a life philosophy. There is a better word. It's called effective altruism. <laughs> <laughs> it's two words, Ashlyn. I'm sorry. This is why it was important I was a guest this week. <laughs> Pedantism. <laughs> Ped- pedantry. Uh, so... <laughs> Did you give him that opening on purpose? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't help you guys. <laughs> I think we need to pause for a moment and put the microphone next to Huxley's face. Perfect. <laughs> okay, nobody say anything interesting while we break for food because I'm turning the recording off. Great. This is the part where we can advocate for firebombing, right? I haven't paused the recording yet. I think yeah. they look like penises. Yeah. When they're Turn the recording right back on. Just <laughs> I know that there is a... Ju- I've spent this whole time trying to work out what the pun is with meta-effective altruism and Rocco's basilisk, because there's definitely one. Yep. And I just can't for the life of me work out what it is. Uh, I would like to summarize a little bit from Dr. Samantha book... Uh, I'd like to summarize a little bit from Dr. Samantha Nutt's book, Damned Nations. She was the... Is it just because I'm saying the word nut? Because <laughs> no. first it was Dr. Samantha Book, and then it's like, I'm reading a book. Your last name must be Book. And then it turned out to be Samantha Nuts, and that was just funny. I'm sorry. No, that's fair, though. That's definitely fair. It's easy to think, surely someone who just lost everything will appreciate this. Like Plato. Plato? He wrote The Republic. They send off their used goods that they don't really want anymore, but they think they're still good. Huxley's <laughs> very upset about this. Yes. You, do you want me to continue or not? Not. I know, there might be a few more good jokes yet. <laughs> it, it, At least we're not going full-blown clip show, because we all know how that turns out. Here we have a, uh... Huxley <laughs> <laughs> did not approve of clip shows. <laughs> Why didn't you give it to me? We're almost done, bro. Jem had a shorter segment this time, so he had to make sure he still got the most talking in on the show. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? Holy shit, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It's gonna be a great podcast. Holy shit! I don't know. Beatrice Arthur. Yeah, yeah B. Arthur was in the Star Wars holiday she special. She did a torch song. Uh, which has been stuck in my head. Just one more round, friend. Then homeward bound, friend. Don't forget me in your dreams Just one more song, friend And then so long, friend The nights get shorter, it seems Just one more rhyme, friend Yes, it's a crime, friend But you know time, friend Time 
can fly. So it's good night, friend. Good night, but not goodbye. Just one more drop, friend, before we stop, friend. One more moment, face to face. Next time you're dry, friend, try stopping by, friend, if there's a light in the place. We may not thrive, friend, but we survive, friend. We're alive, friend, you and I. So say goodnight, friend. <clears throat> Good night, but not goodbye. such a dear friend. You know I'm here, friend. Is that a dear friend? In your eye. Now it's good night, friend. Good night, but not
Circle at and the end. And suddenly your listenership plummets. <laughs> at the end of the show. 